This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. On December 3rd, I'm co-leading a native plant wreath-making workshop for the Friends of the Chico State Herbarium with a botanist friend of mine. We do this almost every year, and I love it. I love the history of wreath-making. I love the seasonal connection and the history of gathering elements to make wreaths, the craft of the actual coming together of the elements, the individual personality of such efforts, and the universal urge for such activities. I don't consider myself a really crafty person, and yet, truth be told, every fall and winter, my head and heart and hands turn to wanting to make something tangible from the plants and fruits of the land around me for celebrating and culminating this ongoing relationship. For the first half of today's Cultivating Place, I'm joined in the studio by Caitlin Atkinson, gardener, and nature photographer. A lifelong plant lover, Caitlin's work has been featured in national publications for the past decade. Drawing inspiration from gardens, parks, nature, history, and art, Caitlin has a new book out entitled Plant Craft, encouraging anyone and everyone to harness the desire to create, connect, and enjoy nature with an indoor garden project. In the second half of the program, we're joined by garden and floral designer Alethea Harampolis, co-owner with Jill Rizzo of Bay Area floral design company Studio Chew. Alethea and Jill are the co-authors of several books, including The Wreath Recipe Book, originally published by Artisan in 2014. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. I always like to start with you and the early influences in your life. I've always loved plants and nature and gardens. Um, My parents were back-to-the-land farmers and gardeners, and I grew up in the foothills of California, so I was always exploring the land and nature and spent a lot of time in the garden with my mom. You grew up in Nevada City. Yes. What led you to your current work, which combines art? Like, What was your path from there? I studied photography at the California College of Arts in the Bay Area, and I started actually doing more art photography and um, had some shows and galleries and at the same time began assisting commercial photographers. Throughout college, I had worked at a florist, worked doing floral events and um, in the actual flower shop. So it was kind of a combination of the different interests when I um, started working at Flora Grub Gardens and did interior merchandising at their San Francisco gardening mecca. And I did a little bit of styling, which included interiors and flowers. And then Taking it a step further, I combined the interests of photography and styling to work on this book. Your background in the natural environment of the foothills and then being in this highly stylized urban environment of Flora Grub Gardens, which for listeners who may not have a familiarity with it, is a very cutting-edge plant-driven design nursery in downtown San Francisco, and it has a fantastic reputation for clean lines and modern feel, but deep horticultural passion. It's a beautiful confluence of your artistic eye, your photographic eye, and your plant love. So 
you got started working on this book. Describe that journey for us. Well, I had um, previously done the photographs for a book called Air Plants, which was all about Tillandsias. This is sort of a takeoff of that, but I wanted to go beyond just plants and also incorporate crafting with natural materials because I've always loved using whatever I've found out on my walks or exploring the meadow. And I just wanted to make it something that anybody could do, whether they were in an urban environment or whether they were in a suburban environment or an agricultural area. Just the idea of bringing a little bit of life into your house and extending the garden inside, or if you didn't have the outside space, being able to kind of use that same creative energy to create something. And I don't know about you, but I very much have this drive, especially I think maybe it's holiday, like our cultural impulse to create something towards the winter. But I think it's true in the spring, too. It's just a seasonal shift in what you want to craft. But a couple of times a year, I get this crazy urge and I'll make 37 little felt Christmas trees. And this urge is sort of universal. And if you are living in a small space or in a very urban environment or you don't have a big garden, this book really addresses an audience that is not necessarily very traditional gardeners, but they still want that connection to doing something with your hands and being very engaged with the natural world and and plants. Yeah, I think there's that urge to kind of nest in the, Mm -hmm. when you come into the fall and winter seasons to kind of create a cozy indoor oasis in a sense, um, which is what we're looking for, you know, when we garden as well, these sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. And so being able to create anything from a small tabletop planting to something that you can use, hang on the wall or feature on your table at Thanksgiving, it's a great way to just connect yourself back to the natural world. The book is organized in four large sections, build, craft, mount, and plant. They range from fairly sort of skill heavy where you're using a drill and a saw and screwdrivers and things like this to much, much more simple projects. How did you choose the projects for the book? It was kind of a process with my editor of trying to find ones that I was really excited about and she was really interested in working with certain materials. And so that was a process of seeing what inspired me throughout the year as the seasons changed. You you, you know, you'll go on a walk and you'll discover, huh, those leaves look amazing. What could I do with those? And so it's sort of just taking in daily life and trying to find inspiration through that adventure. There were a couple that really resonated with me. What were your favorite projects in the book? I love the Flowers on the Wall, which is was inspired by a Jim Hodges art piece that I had seen. Describe it. Yeah. So the actual project is dried flowers. It could be leaves as well. But essentially, if you dry flowers in sand for two weeks, as you would when you press flowers, so you need to leave them in for two weeks, they'll retain their three-dimensional shape. When you take them out, they still hold the color. And then I essentially mounted them onto little pins that I had put in the wall. And you can pull them out further or push them in a little bit more to give a little bit of dimension and then make a pattern on the wall in any shape that you want. It could be a nebula. It could be, you know, a a wandering trail. I used a mix of flowers that I had dried over a period of time, and they do eventually fade, but you can replace them or let them fade, and it's kind of fun to add new ones as time goes on. I've had mine up for 
a year and a half, and I still love it. It is really magical. The picture in the book, which I'm trying to find right now as we sit here, all I could think of was my cat would eat them, <laughs> but my daughters would love this. It, it is, it's very fantastic and dreamy. It's sort of ephemeral, these pinks and purple flowers in this three-dimensional pattern all along the wall. So you did this at home, and is that the picture that's in the book? Yeah. 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 Um, and it's been up for a year. Yeah, over a year, and I'm actually just drying some more right now. Um, I have, like, four boxes of sand at home with new flowers that I'm going to just add in. I'm going to leave the old ones up, but just add in some new ones to kind of liven it up a little bit. But And I suppose you could do a small space so that it wasn't, you know, it didn't take up an entire wall and you weren't as worried about dogs, cats, kids. Right, exactly. Stuff. You could make it a very orderly pattern. The options are kind of endless in terms of size and space. Okay, what about a good winter one? If you wanted to do something kind of for the holidays, maybe the garland, which is all kind of foraged and a few added succulents. It has a traditional feel because it is a garland that's going over a mantelpiece, but it also brings in surprising elements, especially if you are, you know, in your head, you see evergreens and red bows. There was some moss and some lichen and then the succulents. And I believe you use a similar method to a traditional wreath making method where you create little bundles of that, that are almost like little um, bouquets in your hand, little posies, and then you string them all together, and they create this really beautiful draping effect. But the materials that you were suggesting in there um, are out of the ordinary and very, very beautiful. Yeah, I love the I, – I used California pepperberries, which aren't actually from California, but um, – <laughs> and amaranth and, uh, you know, and then some live oak and – a lot of things that I just kind of harvested late in the season out of the garden and that I collected from um, around my house and with the lichen that was streaming down and then added in the succulents, which are great because after you feature them in your garland, or you could actually make it into a wreath if you wanted to attach those same bouquets to a wreath frame. But you can then take those succulents after you've used them and plant them outside mm -hmm. if you want or inside if they're a good houseplant. Um, but they're great because they can keep giving after the season. The, you have a very encyclopedic, helpful list of materials that you will need and plant materials that you might want to use that you suggest for some of these projects. But I was really pleased to see your note on foraging in the beginning. What are your personal rules on foraging that other people, you would like other people to keep in mind? Uh, you are not allowed to forage on state park land. And a lot of people don't realize that or they kind of think, well, if I just take a little bit, but you know, if everyone's doing that, it kind of, it depletes this natural resource, which we have available to everyone. And I, I would like to keep it as beautiful as it is mm -hmm. today. So often I forage on my own land. I'm fortunate enough to have family that has um, a large parcel. But if you, if you don't have that, you might have a friend that has a place or you might be able to ask somebody before mm -hmm. you go and forage from their land. The idea is that when you are foraging, you're not taking all of one thing. So if you're taking a piece of moss off of a rock, if you take a small amount and there's enough for that moss to regenerate, then you're not going to destroy that 
ecosystem right. and the environment. If it's an invasive species and you want to use it for a project, that's great. Take all, Take all of it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's a great use of invasive species. And I think making a note about doing a little bit of research. So you you are familiar in the area that you are working in with what is native, what is invasive. If there's anything rare or under great pressure, just don't even touch it. Choose things that are already fallen, like fallen lichen or fallen branches, fallen Mm -hmm. leaves. That is an important etiquette for us all to keep in mind, no matter how beautiful it is and how much you want it in your house. What else would you like to share with listeners about the motivation behind a project like this? I hope everyone can find something to build their own creativity and allow them to have a little bit of fun and kind of engage with the natural world in a positive and joyful way. One of the things I really liked about the whole book and the pre- and the idea behind it, I think, is that, you know, when we use the word garden, a very particular picture comes into a person's mind. And for one person, it might be a vegetable garden. For another person, it might be a big, grand estate garden. But this gets down to getting dirty, sawing things up, making things, and, and as you say, just being really engaged in being part of the world around you. Yeah, and also finding an awareness of the kind of impermanence of mm-hmm. that world and the finicky nature of gardening and letting things come and go, which is part of the joy of gardening, Um, seeing things grow, but also letting them kind of pass through your life and just see what comes next. One of the great lessons of the garden. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're talking about the human urge to sometimes craft our garden plants branches, flowers, seeds, cones, and fruit into other unique creations. For me, this urge is particularly strong in fall and winter. Perhaps it's an effort to preserve the beauty or to celebrate the abundance. We've just been hearing from gardener, stylist, and photographer Caitlin Atkinson about her new book, Plant Craft, which helps direct these crafting urges into some amazing projects. After the break, we'll continue the conversation with Alethea Harampolis, floral designer and co-author of The Wreath Recipe Book, about the traditional and not-so-traditional practice of crafting wreaths. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Before the break, we began our conversation with Caitlin Atkinson about the creative satisfaction of a good indoor garden or nature project. We're back and now joined by Alethea Harampolis of San Francisco's Studio Chew Floral Design and co-author of The Wreath Recipe Book. Welcome, Alethea. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to uh, be interviewed by you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I grew up in Marin County in the Bay Area to an Australian mother who loved being in the garden. And my grandfather, her father, grew flowers for the Australian flower market in Melbourne. So gardening was a huge part of her life when she was a kid, and she passed that love on to me. When I was a kid, I would just follow her all around the garden and ask her, what, you know, what's this plant and what does it smell like and how does it grow and tons and tons of questions about gardening. And, you know, being in Northern California, we would go for lots of hikes just around the area, out to the ocean and up into the hills. And I was always foraging for things, little pine cones and sticks and rocks and 
flowers and nature and things like that has always been a huge part of my life. As I got older, I decided that I wanted to start incorporating them more into my flower arrangements. So that's kind of the basis of how Jill and I got together. She's a florist from Rhode Island, and she had kind of like the FTD background. And I've got this, you know, wild Northern California kind of hippie foraging background. (laughs) So that's what made Studio Chew what it is, is our two different this marriage Love. of the wild and the contained. Exactly. And at what point did you become a designer and stylist? I walked into a flower shop in San Francisco about 15 years, and Jill was working there, and I needed a job, and um, she and I became instant friends. She hired me on the spot, and I'd never worked with flowers before but had really always wanted to just because of my childhood. And I just started processing flowers and didn't actually design anything for about a year. The woman that owned the shop was very meticulous about her style and design and aesthetic. And so I spent a year just processing flowers, learning what bucket to use, how much water, things like that. And then I ended up working there for about four years and then moved up to Seattle and worked as an estate gardener on a 14-acre estate out in the snow and the rain and the sun and everything that happens up there. And so that's when my gardening and my floristry started to merge. I worked there until I couldn't stand the rain anymore. And then I went to, I worked in a flower shop in Seattle for about another three years. And then Jill called me and said, come back to the Bay Area. I want to start a business with you. So I got my car and drove back down. That was in um, January of 2009. And we started Studio Chew in March. And so that's when I feel like I really started to become like a floral designer, Mm -hmm. that all my previous work and training and apprenticeships and things that I was doing all merged into one. And it seems like a really holistic, in the field, on the ground apprenticeship of not only learning how to process flowers and then design with them and seeing other people's tastes and, and takes on this, but then going and actually working in a garden that you had to maintain and you get a much deeper understanding of how these plants grow, what they expect, what they need, what their all their peaks and low points might be, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, how to bring out the best of them in any one season, which clearly comes into both books that I have seen of yours. The wreath recipe book is just beautiful, so perfect for this time of year that we're coming into. But as the book really emphasizes, it's a year-round impulse and um, is alive with your foraging and um, naturalistic wildness, I think. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure of seeing you put together an artistic display, a, a large floral design. It was magic. So oh, um, thank you. It was it was really a beautiful experience, and you can see that in in the book. What was the catalyst behind writing this book and putting it together, and the idea of it being a recipe book? Um, Artisan approached us, the publisher, they usually make cookbooks and they wanted to create, you know, we did the flower recipe book before the wreath recipe and they realized that that writing a book that way with its ingredient driven is very easy for people to understand. So it's just like the cookbook recipe, but with flowers or sticks or whatever you're using. Um, And so we... um, You know, me in particular, I make wall hangings and wreaths and all kinds of things all year round. We wanted other people to do the same thing and to just, um, you know, kind of 
have a little view into our brains and our imagination of, you know, when you're in your backyard and it's fall and leaves are starting to fall and the branches are starting to get bare, being able to look at a tree and pick out the most perfect branches on that tree to make a wreath or a wall hanging or something like that. So we wanted people to be able to experience, you know, how we see nature so that they can do projects like we do. And what is nice, I grew up gardening. I grew up with a mother who collected these kinds of things, and but not everybody has. And so, and even so, I find this book very reassuring because it kind of holds your hand through what to look for and what to gather and what season you might be in. And it, and it walks you through it. So it's a, a kind of, you know, paint by numbers. But then once you get that first foundational piece done, you're like, wait, I could also do this. And then I could do this. So it, it, it not only gives you this nice container to, to work within, so you feel safe and, you know, like you're not going to mess up completely. It yeah. then also gives you this permission to make it your own and become more creative. Like it gives you the, the freedom and the um, excitement to want to like change it up. And Yeah, that's what we were hoping for. And I'm glad that that's what you took from it. We wanted those projects to be a jumping off point for anything. So if you've got, um, you know, if you've got pomegranates hanging from branches in your yard, you could take those and you could make a wreath or a wall hanging. You could put them in a flower arrangement so that it would inspire you to get creative and to think of more things. And as you turn the pages, more and more projects come up that you can keep using the things that you have into those different projects. I know this is not just winter-based, but for me personally, there's something about that turning of the seasons from fall to winter, and probably it's because I can't be out in the garden quite as much, or uh-huh. you know, there's not quite as much fresh material all the time. I really get this bizarre impulse to craft, and you know, it kind of cracks me up. But it's a very, a very satisfying activity to work with your hands and transform something into something else. If you had two of your recipes that you would like to see readers or listeners try out, even if they're not maybe crafters by nature and are out there, you know, shaking their heads being like, no way am I going to do that, which ones would you encourage them to just to just try, to just give up their inhibitions yeah. and their crafty bias and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this? Yeah. One of my favorites, um, which is I think more of one of the weirder ones, which is I always go to the weirder things, um, is the lilac branches that have needlepoint thread <laughs> wrapped around them. I love doing that, and I do it for all kinds of things, especially um, in the holiday seasons. I do a lot of installation work at restaurants, and I'll take giant branches and wrap them with different color threads. And so all the threads hang down like a white wall, and it looks so beautiful with this big branch wrapped with these different colored threads. Um, And I think it's something that people don't think about. But I love incorporating, you know, all parts of craft. So the nature, you know, the sewing parts, cooking, you know, all those things, I feel like they all go together hand in hand. So that's definitely one of my favorite projects. And you can use it with, you know, a bare stick, a piece of driftwood, You know, it's just, you could do it out in your yard on a tree that's living. It could be like this living installation that you have in your yard, and you could watch the different colored ribbons blow. It would be so beautiful. It reminded Um, me of a prayer flag when I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's definitely one of my favorites. And then I think one of the other ones is just a very simple wreath that has um, 
It's a honeysuckle-based wreath, and it has cymbidium orchids on it that are in water tubes, and a little tiny bit of, it's, it's kind of more bare. It has just a tiny little bit of rose hips on it, tiny little rose hips. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so beautiful just because it's, you see a lot of the wreath frame, um, and I really only use natural wreath frames. I don't go to wire very often unless I need to put natural material on the wire to make it more sturdy. Um, but I think using those honeysuckle bases or the grapevine bases, you actually see the frame that's behind what you're making, um, which I think is a really beautiful part of it. You know, a wreath doesn't have to be covered in material. You know, people make the little packets in their hands of like, you know, it's always got the same four ingredients and it goes around and around and it's very symmetrical. Um, and I'm always trying to break that barrier. I'm, you know, doing things asymmetrical and pushing the boundaries of a circle really excites me. So, and just using a few dried things, rose hips, you know, just the beauty of a rose from its different stages of buds, and then you get the beautiful blossoms, and then you've got the rose hips. Um, Watching a plant go through all the seasons, I think, is just like one of my favorite things to do. Just to make something that's minimal but very beautiful, it's got some living things on it and some dried things. You can take the cymbidiums off when they're done. You could replace it with something else or you could, you know, go on a walk and put some pretty leaves or pine cones in its place. It's a wreath that just could keep going. It's very able to be transformed over and over and over again. So it kind of goes and it that spareness of that honeysuckle base with those orchids and the rose hips is so uh, reflective of, for, for me, for right now, for winter, for, um, you know, a more spare season. And so it's very uh, soothing to look at that as opposed to some of the more riotous, um, mm-hmm. you know, or very dense, you know, Christmas or, you know, hol- yeah. winter holiday ones uh, would, um, it, it elicits a very different response, which is which is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us your artistry and creativity and knowledge, Alethea. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was so great to talk to you. Being able to follow a recipe really helps kickstart any great creative wreath or plant craft project. Garden and floral designer Alethea Harampolis is co-owner with Jill Rizzo of Bay Area floral design company Studio Chew. Alethea and Jill are the co-authors of several books, including The Wreath Recipe Book, originally published by Artisan in 2014. If you have the fall, winter, or holiday urge to craft with plants, flowers, branches, and berries, look around your area for wreath, swag, or centerpiece classes being held throughout November and December. Our local independent nurseries and garden clubs always host excellent classes this time of year, I'll bet yours do too. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos of Caitlin's and Alethea's from life and from their books and projects, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.